We've been in a series talking about this idea that Christmas was God's greatest statement to us of our worth. Because Christmas said we were worth it all. What does that mean? Well, it meant that the Father said we were worth it to give his only son to us to reconcile us back to himself. That when he looked at us, he determined that we were so valuable to him that we were worth his sacrifice of his son to bring us back to himself. Jesus, the the day that he was born, this this idea of Christmas, the celebration of his birth, is God's statement to us saying, hey, the birth of my son is what determines your worth because you were worth it all to me. So we talked through that idea a little bit and the idea that we look at a lot of voices around us to determine our worth. We look at the voice inside of our own head every morning when we wake up and look in the mirror. Look at the voice here, the voices that are surrounding us, that are people speaking to us, and those voices are trying to give us our worth, but really the voice that matters the most is the voice of the creator God, our creator, the designer of heaven and earth. And that as we listen to his voice, his voice would say, actually, I see you worthy. I see you as someone that I would say are valuable to me. But then oftentimes those voices, as we talked last week, form themselves, these sounds form themselves into these little things called words. And words are things that we begin to repeat over and over in our minds. And words are things that we begin to speak over ourselves. And if we're not careful, we'll let those words spoken by ourselves or spoken by others determine our worth as well. But God would say, no, would we listen and take a moment to read that actually his words should determine our worth. What he has to say about us should determine our worth. What he has to say about who we are and who we're meant to be, that that should determine our worth. And if we're finding our worth in his voice and we're finding our worth from his words, we're then free to be generous and loving and and forgiving to those around us because those voices and words aren't determining our self-worth anymore. His voice in his words determine our self-worth. And he makes the greatest statement of that with the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to continue on that series this morning. And we've talked about voices and words. And this morning, we're actually going to talk about this idea of accomplishments. In the 1900s, early 1900s, an idea was born called the American Dream. Just after the Great Depression, an individual wrote a book called the great American epic. And in this American epic, in this book, he wrote this idea that every American should be entitled to the idea of owning your own land, white picket fence, children, good job, safety, security, accomplishments, and possessions. That this was the idea of the American dream. And and because we were coming out of the Great Depression, presidents began to put places put in place as programs, help the American people recover and step into this idea of an American dream. And we worked very hard at doing everything possible to begin to accomplish things and amass possessions. Alas, maybe in that time is when we begin to begin to become less of human beings and more of human doings where we began to realize that we had to work to build for ourselves to prove to people that we could accomplish the American dream. And in doing so, that made us a valuable member of society. That determined our worth to people around us. And people would look at each other and see what we had built, what we had created, comparing each other to see if we had determined ourselves worthy enough of being an American in this idea of having fulfillment of this American dream. 
And so we began to do stuff, constantly doing and doing and doing. And we kind of began to mix up this idea of being and doing. Now, I can see kind of fruit of that in my own life with my children when I look at them and I ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they begin to tell me these different jobs that they want to have. Now, if you really think about that, it's kind of messed up because what I'm telling them is that their being isn't good enough, that their being is going to be determined by their doing. That when they decide what they're going to do, that's going to give them the value of their being. Does that make sense? Because they're trying to think, and I, okay, Dad, well, I want to do this, and I want to do that, and, wow, good job for this, and good job for that. Why wouldn't I just say, hey, just your existence is good enough. It's good enough to me that you're my son, my daughter. It's good enough to our Heavenly Father that you exist. Everything's already been done in Him. You don't need to do anything more. Sure, if you want to accomplish some things, that's great, but that doesn't determine your worth. But alas, I don't take the time to say that. And I just have this idea that what do you want to be is confusing with what you want to do. You might find yourself at many Christmas parties this holiday season, as I find myself, and you meet someone new for the first time, and you say, hey, how's it going? Good, what's your name? So-and-so, so-and-so. Oh, where do you live? Here, here. Wow, it's been sunny lately. Yeah, it's been cold lately. Yeah, the rain's not been the best, of course. And then you're staring around the room looking for somewhere else to go, and then eventually someone asks the most intense personal question you could ever ask someone in a shallow Christmas party. Well, I guess if we have to talk, I guess you can tell me about what you do. And then we ask them what they do, and they got to begin to have this awkward conversation, depending where they are at in life, about this or that, and explaining. And you get the pressure, and when it's your turn, to kind of measure up to that or help them determine your worth is high based on what you do. So you've learned really good language to make what you do sound really cool and important. (laughs) You might be just a barista, and you're like, well, I create this chemically-induced drink that fuels people up every morning. And they're like, wow, where is that? Well, it's coffee at Starbucks. But anyways, because we feel this pressure that what I do is going to determine my worthiness of their company. What's fascinating, though, is when you study the idea of the American dream, actually, though, many people attribute it to this author in the 1930s. When you look deeper, many people would say that's not the original idea of where the American dream came from. In fact, if you look over 200 years earlier, in the 1600s, a guy named James Winthrop stood in front of the Puritans in the beginning of this new world, this eventually to become American nation, and spoke to them a sermon called The Light on the Hill. And in this sermon, he began to outlay his concept or his idea for what God was speaking to them for what America was to become. And he gave them this picture of an American dream. And the picture was this that we will accomplish what this land is to become if we do two things. First, work together. The first core idea was not you working as an individual. The first core idea was working together. Secondly, he said this, we will work together and listen to the teachings of Jesus. That's actually the original idea of the American dream for this nation, that people would come here with the ability to have religious freedom, to work together with the ingenuity, creativity, cultivation, and collaboration to make something of this new world, all the while doing it, listening to the teachings of Jesus. That's actually the original idea of the American dream. And that's kind of encouraging. You know why? Because in 2016, the New York Post wrote an article that the, the idea of the American dream is on fire. 
and not in a good way. It's burning to the ground. In fact, millennials today don't want to own a home. It might be partly because they will never be able to own a home because most millennials are having to move into urban settings to find competitive careers. And to do that in these settings, the real estate is ridiculously expensive. And the idea of owning a home seems so huge, why would I even try to accomplish it? So it's almost like America is at a place to come back to maybe the original idea of the American dream. Because it had nothing to do with you building something by yourself. It had everything to do with us building something together while learning from Jesus. Christmas has something to say about our worth. And Christmas has something to say about our worth being found in our accomplishments. Christmas says to us that our worth is not found in what we need to do. Christmas says our worth is found in what's already been done. What's been done? Jesus came and gave his life for us. That's where we find our worth. Not in our doing, but in our being, knowing that our being is justified by something that's already been done. Christmas shouts to us that God is not sitting here waiting for you to do something for him. God is sitting there waiting for you to give yourself to him. That it's not about us trying to find something I need to do to determine my wealth, my worth to God so he can look at me and say, wow, you're worthy of my love. But actually that my idea should shift and that it should be one that I sit and realize I'm actually just supposed to give myself to God. That was a great story that's found in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the Synoptic Gospels, all three. And it's the story of the rich young ruler. And I want to read this story, and then we're going to kind of look at it historically a little bit and kind of pull a bit of the truth of the teaching of Jesus around this idea of determining our worth by what we've accomplished and what we possess. If you have your Bibles, you can open with me to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to start reading in verse 16. The words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. If not, I will take a moment and pause while you open your Bible. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones? The man asked. And Jesus replied, You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have a treasure in heaven, then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Now, there's a couple of historical 
cultural things we have to address here, but I kind of want to frame those in light of two kind of main ideas that Jesus is communicating. The first one is this. Jesus is not an addition to one's life. Jesus is a revolution of one's life. Jesus is not an addition to one's life. Jesus is a revolution of one's life. This young ruler comes to him because he's trying to learn from this teacher what he needs to add to his life. He already has all the possessions he needs. He, in his mind, is upholding all the religious laws and activity he needs to uphold. And he's hearing this teacher named Jesus running around saying these radical things, and he's wondering, man, this dude has something I don't have. I need to get time with him as a teacher and learn what I need to do. In fact, twice in these verses, he repeats, thank you, Jesus, for those kind statements, but what do I need to do? And so he comes because he knows there's a lack in what he has, and he wants to learn what he needs to add to that lack. Jesus doesn't want to be an addition, though. Jesus wants a revolution in this young man's life. Now, culturally and historically, at this time, Jewish individuals believed that if you upheld the law and you did the right sacrifices and you observed everything God commanded, you would be blessed. And that your physical wealth and your physical well-being and that that you've amassed for yourself was a determination of your worth to God and then people understood how to look at you. Wow, this young guy really loves God. This young guy has God's favor on his life. But see, Jesus wants to flip the script because to Jesus, that doesn't make anyone more worthy. To Jesus, your good deeds and your bad deeds don't make you more worthy or not. It's not in what you need to do. It's in what he's already done. So Jesus is going to introduce this idea to him that he needs to let go of what he has to really find what's most valuable. The world wants to tell you that your worth is determined by the accomplishments and the possessions you hold in your hands. And Jesus wants to tell you your worth is determined by what you possess in your heart. And what's in your heart? Well, it's Jesus if you accept him. And that he would consider you worth it so much that he would want to reside in you and his residence in you is the greatest statement of your worth. The world wants to tell you, amass things in your hands. Jesus wants to tell you, let them go and amass me in your heart. And that's what he's telling this rich young ruler. He's, he's literally telling him, let it all go. Lay it all down. Now, Jesus wants to push it a little bit more than that because Jesus wants to let him know that God is going to demand more than this young man has ever thought, but then God is going to give him more than he ever imagined. That God is going to ask from him, Jesus is going to ask from him more than he ever thought he would ask for him. Wait, what? Sell all my possessions? Give it to the poor? Okay, I can kind of roll with that deal but then follow you in these radical ideas? Like, no, I'm going to walk away sad because I can't do that. See, Jesus wants to demand more from us than we ever thought, which is our whole life, but he's going to give us back more than we ever imagined. Sometimes we're stuck holding these accomplishments, some of them being positive accomplishments, some of them being negative accomplishments. 
Jesus is saying, you're finding your worth in what you're holding. But that's not what determines your worth with me. Let those go. Let me in. Because that's what needs to determine your worth. In different cultures around the world, and you might have traveled to different places, you might find that typically locals like to capture wildlife and then make wildlife do tricks so you could give it money, and that's how they collect funding for themselves. And typically this wildlife is a monkey. And if you've noticed, in any country you go to that's developing, there's always a monkey in a chain that's doing tricks for you to give money. Well, I began to think, how the heck are they catching these monkeys? Now, it's fascinating. When you Google how they catch these mon- monkeys, there's actually a pretty strong process that's done beside, in every culture. Some cultures use a glass bottle with a thin neck and a large bottom part. Some use a coconut with a small hole tied to the ground. Some just use hard clay with a hole in it. And the idea is this across all culture, that if you can make a small opening and drop bait through the opening through the end where it's wider, universally, for whatever reason, monkeys will stick their hand through the hole, grab a hold of what's there, and they will hold on to that. And while the trapper comes to get them, they think that they're trapped because they won't let it go, and the trapper is able to capture the monkey. That sounds ridiculous until when I think about it. My wife's got these really nice, slender hands, and when she opens the bag of salt and vinegar chips, she makes this kind little hole. I have these large meat cleaver hands, and I have to try to stick my hand through this hole. Then when I get it through and I get the potato chips, I'll sit there like this for a long time. Because I'm like, I don't want to let go of the potato chip. I can feel it's a big one. It's a whole one. I don't want to let it go. Eventually, I pull it out, break the bag open, chips go flying everywhere, and I'm vacuuming the rest of the evening. These monkeys are not trapped. All they have to do is what? Open their hand. Let go. That's all they have to do. But the idea that their worth is wrapped up in the bait that's within their hands is so dominating to them that then they actually get trapped. Jesus is looking at this rich young ruler and saying, you know what? Your worth is all wrapped up in what you're holding on to. You want to know what you need to do? Let it go. Because when you let it go, you're going to find out you're actually free. You're actually free to run with me. You're actually free to receive what I want to give you, which is more than you ever imagined. You're actually free to see that your worth is determined not by your accomplishments or the possessions you've amassed. Your worth is simply determined by what I've already done for you. You can actually be a human being and stop being a human doing because it's nothing about what you have to do that makes up your worth. It's about everything that I've done for you that should determine your worth. Now, does that that mean that we shouldn't build things? No. Of course, we should collaborate, create, cultivate, shape culture, shape creation, amass possessions and wealth for ourselves, build a better life in a nation, lead in governments and law and business. Of course we should do those things, but only to the point that it's for God's glory, not our own. Only to the point that it's not tied up in our worth. Because the moment that our worth is tied up in those accomplishments, any circumstance can make us feel depressed Because all of a sudden, when the circumstance changes, my worth changes. But see, Jesus is here with a new message. Jesus is here with a new voice, a new set of words, a new way to align your lives. He's saying your worth can be found in what I did Christmas Day. 
Your worth doesn't have to be found in what you're doing every day of the week. You can just be a human being knowing that you are loved and accepted by me. That should be the basis of your worth, not in the things you think you need to accomplish or gain or get. Paul really grabbed hold of this idea and fleshed it through often through his letters and his epistles. And this morning I want to go through a couple of them just briefly of where he mentions this idea of where we should get our worth from now that Jesus has made a statement on Christmas and also Easter. Colossians chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me, starting in verse 23. Work willing at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. That when we work, which we should do, work was in the garden before the fall. God was a gardener in the paradise garden that he created and he was a carpenter before he started his technical vocational ministry. God values work but work wasn't meant to determine your worth. So of course we're supposed to work, and we should go to work, and we should do it well, but we should do it well not because our worth depends on it. We should do it well because we're trying to bring glory to who God is. We should do it well because we're trying to show that we don't work from a power of trying to determine our self-worth. We work from a power that's supernatural, that saved me. That now my worth is determined Not by the things I think I need to accomplish. My worth is determined by the things that Jesus accomplished on the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says in verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Anything you do now is meant to bring glory to God to God, that he doesn't need your doing, he already has your being, so as you work and do things, you don't do them to prove your worth, you do them to just bring him glory, but not because he loves you anymore or gives you any greater worth, that's already been determined, that's objectively true, nothing changes that, that means that if you're successful, you're worth it to him just the same as if you're not successful and you've made a ton of mistakes, Your doing doesn't determine your worth to Jesus. What he's already done has determined your worth to him. That gives us a sense of freedom then. An ability to walk into circumstances both positive and negative, not allowing those circumstances to affect our confidence or our self-esteem because we realize that has already been determined for you and I because that was determined by what Jesus did. That was determined on Christmas when Jesus stepped into creation and said, you are worth it all to me, so I'm willing to give everything I have for you. That means that I can make, at times, seemingly bad American dream decisions, like packing up my life, moving to Bali to create an opportunity for people in Bali to create wealth for themselves and get off the streets. That Someone might look at that and say, Caleb, why would you do that at such a young age? What a bad decision for the American dream. But we can do that because that, what I do, does not determine my worth. My worth is already tied up in what Christ has already done. Now I am free to do the things he asks me to do. And what I find 
is that maybe it cost me more than I ever imagined, or maybe it cost me more than I ever thought, but as I'm doing that thing, I'm realizing Jesus had more for me than I could have ever dreamed for. But we don't know that until we let go of the bait and get our hand free from the hole. Christmas is the greatest statement to us of our self-worth. And when we can find that there, then we can realize that it's no longer about what I have to do, but it's about everything about who I already am. And Christ loved me enough to give himself for me. So as you walk into Christmas parties, these last closing days of this season, and maybe you're already dreading the family Christmas Eve party because Uncle So-and-So is going to ask you, what did you do this year? How did you further your career? Did you fill your bank account? And all you're going to say is, I filled a bank account, but it's not mine. It's more my credit card debt account. (laughs) Don't walk in depressed, downtrodden, dreading those situations because those things don't determine your worth. Maybe you're dreading sitting with people because you're going to have to admit some difficult situations you got put yourself in and you weren't as successful as you thought. Or maybe you made a lot of mistakes this year and you've just pulled it together just before Christmas. Here's my encouragement to you. The things that you did do not determine your worth anymore. Your worth was determined on this day 2,000 years ago. And regardless of what you ever do or accomplish again, that has no bearing on your worth. You're already considered by God worth it all because of what his son did on Christmas. You can step into Christmas free. You can step into Christmas with love. You can step into Christmas with generosity, with joy, regardless of your circumstance, because those things that happened this year did not determine your worth. This holiday you're stepping into is a celebration of your worth. And Jesus looked at every single one of you and said, you were worth it.